Hold on to your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Whoa, it's us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Joey Clark. Uh, good evening and welcome to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Thank you so much for listening this evening. Now, you might have heard the last two nights we were talking about a topic you shouldn't ever discuss in public, religion. But the point of this show, as I made clear on the first episode, is to understand the new changes in this world, our technological capabilities, and to make moral sense of these capabilities. And by technological capabilities, we don't just mean new gadgets, we don't just mean new tech in like the sense of computers, but also new ways of thinking. It is always new ways of thinking and people who are thinking towards the future that allow us to progress. And tonight, that is exactly what our guest is going to do. Our guest is Brian Patrick Ehaw. He's a author and a journalist, but in particular the author of a new book called How Money Got Free, Bitcoin and the Fight for the Future of Finance. He has written for The Atlantic, Fortune, CNN Money, Outside, The Los Angeles Review of Books, and so many other publications, and I believe he is calling us from New York City unless he is mobile. Without further ado, Brian, welcome to the program. How are you tonight? I'm well, thanks for having me, and uh, definitely, as you said, here in New York City tonight, joining you. Well, and you start off the book at a setting, at a scene, and you really do set the scene, and this is what I love about the book. It's more a personal journey, a, a larger narrative, and I've been saying over the last few days while discussing religion that narratives are the most important thing to me, that stories we tell about ourselves and our world, that, to make sense of it. And before right. I set, we set the scene and how you begin the book, I just want to thank you on a personal level, because as I started to read this book, it was bringing back, dusting off old areas of the attic of my mind. It sort of made me go, oh my goodness, I forgot how I first discovered Bitcoin. It wasn't through libertarian circles, though friends like Jeffrey Tucker sort of inspired me and made me see how big this was. But about five years ago, I was living in this house, my roommates and I, called Valhalla. And we would sit on our back porch with these faux Ionian columns made out of wood, painted white. You could see it breaking up at the bottom. And we would sit there and discuss the world and politics. And one night they started talking about how they were going to start mining Litecoin. And this made me ask them all these questions, which led to discussions of how Bitcoin worked, on you know how you're setting up your rigs. I can remember a few mornings sipping my coffee uh, as a little black box in the corner was quietly humming, a little ASIC when you could still do that. And so Bitcoin was this very personal thing to me. It wasn't theoretical. I had a hands-on experience. In many ways, that is the point of your book. And how did you first discover Bitcoin. It was an assignment, right, for CNN Money? Well, I had uh, discovered it personally before that in okay. 2011, but I really knew very little about it. I didn't know quite what to make of it. It just, you know, was like a strange fringe phenomenon that existed 
somewhere on the edge of my consciousness. Uh, but I did follow it a little bit, and I was kind of looking for an opportunity to write about it. And then it was the summer of 2012, and I was a staff writer at CNN Money at the time. And I came across, if any of your listeners know the website Hacker News, it's just a kind of um, aggregated feed of some news articles that pertain to tech and things like that. And I came across this item that had leaked out. Um, there was this Bitcoin startup in Manhattan, and the CEO had, had let some news slip about something the company was working on. They were trying to do a Bitcoin debit card, which sounded interesting to me. And I'll never forget, when I pitched this story to my editor, she told me, okay, you can go ahead and do it, but, you know, don't make too much out of it. She said, uh, Bitcoin is just a, a digital curiosity. It's like a plaything for crypto anarchists. Well, I didn't quite see it that way, but I didn't really have enough ammunition at the time to uh, argue back. And uh, so I just, I went and did the story. And as I talked to the employees of this Bitcoin startup in New York, uh, I just became overwhelmed with the sense that Bitcoin had real potential. They were the first ones to really explain it to me. And uh, it wasn't just the nature of Bitcoin itself, but these guys were young and hungry and passionate. And they were kind of that Mark Zuckerberg school of being willing to move fast and break stuff. And I was just fascinated by how they were risking everything to build the foundations of a new economy. And uh, ultimately, the CEO of that startup became one of the main characters in my book. So, I'll, yeah, I'll never forget that um, that event. And in fact, after the story came out, they had a sort of a keg party. I forget what the occasion was at the time, but they invited me to this party at their offices. And I met some of the other the other guys there. And um, uh, one of the the. Um, one of the, the leads of that startup, one of the leaders, he was wearing these cufflinks at the party that uh, looked like Louis Vuitton or something like that, but instead it was initial standing for Ludwig von Mises, uh, yes. <laughs> if I remember right. At any rate, but back then the price of a single Bitcoin was less than $10, wow. and all the Bitcoins in existence put together were worth only $96 million, while you know, now the price of Bitcoin is well above $4,300. And uh, its market cap is, you know, in the tens of billions. So I have to think I made the right choice to take it seriously. Absolutely. And for me, I, I tried to get others to take it seriously in my life. And I made a little money. I got in when it was about $90, the exchange rate. And mm. I made some money, but I also, well, last year kind of had money troubles. Radio is a very much a, uh, it's not the best paying job until you hit it big. So I... Unfortunately, Not like journalism, that, uh, <laughs> that font of money. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And so I, I had to give it up, but I, it wasn't really about a getting rich quick. It, it was about, as you said, building this new economy and, and a different sort of future. And you begin this book, and again, folks, the book is How Money Got Free, Bitcoin and the Fight for the Future of Finance. You can find it on Amazon. Again, our guest, the author of this book is Brian Patrick Eha, and Go pick this book up if you want to learn more about Bitcoin. But you set it up in this sort of posh restaurant. At the, mm. And why do you pick these sort of uh, guys who are very much power players, mm. big investors, but you say there are some folks missing there mm. as you were at the party? Right. Well, it's interesting. That was in December 2013, which seems so long ago now. But at the time, it felt like uh, Bitcoin was starting to 
perhaps not yet come into its own, but but starting to be on the verge of coming into its own, uh, which I guess is like being engaged to be engaged. Um, <laughs> and what had happened was that in the early days, it was just these radical kind of crypto anarchists and digital libertarian types for the most part, and then some sort of, you know, criminal types and others, black marketeers, who were really engaged in Bitcoin, many of them for, for powerful ideological reasons. And in December 2013, it had started to reach a point where mainstream, perhaps not fully mainstream investors like on Wall Street, but uh, people in Silicon Valley, some smart venture capitalists, some very you know technologically savvy people, were starting to really take a look at it. And they thought it was tremendously interesting as uh, a technology, perhaps as a form of money, perhaps as a, a appreciating asset. But they weren't necessarily uh, swayed by any of the ideological underpinnings that the early Bitcoin community had had. And my book ends up telling the story of all of those people, kind of from the earliest days and then on through the point where it starts being, in a sense, uh, co-opted or the balance of power starts shifting to these um, these power players, as you put it, these more mainstream figures, and then kind of the, the tug of war that develops between them. Right, and these pioneers are, it's really a, a testament to some people end up rich, some people ended up, you know, for instance, Brian, I never thought I would be sitting there r- watching a FinCEN committee meeting or waiting for the mm. new FinCEN rules to come out or the new right. tax policies about this stuff. But I was learning these names. I started listening to a podcast called Let's Talk Bitcoin with Adam Levine and Stephanie Murphy. Right. I heard these names, Roger Ver and uh, Charlie Shrim, and I'm I'm getting into this world and... But everything was going so fast. I was so prodigal. I was only like 24, 25 at the time. And uh, I was talking politics every day on air. And so your book is uh, beautiful to me in the sense that I can go back to those years that went by so quickly and say, okay, here's how a lot of this went down. And you really had access to a lot of these pioneers directly. That's right. Yeah. I, you know, I was a young guy myself, uh, 27 when I got the book deal, um, in December, 2013 initially. And I think that helped me connect with a lot of them. Um, it sounds superficial, but you know, being a 50 year old journalist would be very different than being uh, the same age as a lot of the people leading these startups. And, uh, and then there was the fact that I had been a, a staff editor and entrepreneur if you know that publication, yes. and uh, I left that job in order to focus all my energies on the book. And so, you know, some of the, I was kind of in a sense in the same boat as some of these guys. It was like they were taking a big risk. Uh, some of them had left steady jobs to do these, uh, you know, radical ventures. And similarly, I had left a steady job in order to do uh, this book, which was my first book. And we were all kind of had jumped off the cliff and were trying to build our wings on the way down. And I ended up uh, going to Tokyo to um, meet with some of them. I, uh, I followed one of them down to uh, Chile, where his father has a house, and I stayed at his father's house with him, and that stuff is in the book. And um, actually, I should maybe clarify that I'm not in the book at all, except for in the prologue scene that you mentioned set in that posh restaurant. Right. I tell the story entirely through these other characters. I did not want to put myself at the center of it in any way. But it is great that I was able to see some of these things and talk to these people firsthand because I can then be a fly on the wall who paints the, paints the scene for the reader. And I think that does 
lead to some rich, vivid storytelling. Well, and it is fitting that this new technology doesn't come necessarily out of Silicon Valley, doesn't come out of Wall Street or the big banks. Um, And in many ways, I find that is one of the potential tripwires for the world is the current Mm. monetary system worldwide. I find it incredibly fragile. I do not Mm. want it to uh, descend into chaos and and war because that's so often what has uh, happened in Mm. history. But it is fitting that Bitcoin comes from kind of out of nowhere where people weren't expecting. Before we get into some of the main characters in your book, I think we have to tell a little bit of the origin story and who exactly created this technology. Well, it was uh, released into the world uh, in January 2009 by someone calling himself Satoshi Nakamoto. That was a pseudonym. And in fact, uh, we're not even completely sure it was one individual. It could have been a small group of brilliant people, uh, all kind of using one umbrella identity. Although, there, people who know better than I do about this technical stuff have said that there are idiosyncrasies in the original code uh, for Bitcoin that seem to suggest it was written by just one person uh, rather than determined by committee in the way that uh, like an old master painting has kind of brush strokes in the paint that an art expert can tell whether it's a forgery or not because of the unique way that that person painted. Uh, there are kind of these brush strokes in the code originally that seem to indicate it was the work of one individual. Hmm. Um, now, the the promise of Bitcoin was for it to be uh, a truly universal currency, this form of electronic cash that could be sent around the globe in minutes and it would work as well in you know, Alabama as it does in uh, Tokyo. And uh, transactions were supposed to be more or less anonymous. And one of the revolutionary things about it is that the transactions would take place on a network that exists independently of any government or bank. That makes it a kind of form of digital cash because in the same way I can hand you a $20 bill and I don't need anybody else's permission to do that and we don't need the oversight of anybody else to do that. Uh, you know, there was no way to do that on the Internet before. You had to go through your bank and do a wire transfer electronically, or you had to go through a company like PayPal, um, and they could potentially freeze your account or your funds could get kind of lost in the system or, you know, anything could happen. Um, with this, it established a peer-to-peer method of exchange, but that could be used in the Internet age and, uh, you know, could be used for purchases o- online. It could be used uh, just to send your grandmother, you know, some money uh, back in your home country or whatever you wanted. Um, so Bitcoin can serve as a unit of exchange, uh, something with which you buy a plane ticket or a pair of shoes. But a lot of people are also using it as a store of value, like gold. And and that's what kind of makes Bitcoin this form of uh, commodity money, that it can serve as both a commodity like gold or this kind of traditional form of currency. And then, as I said, it's also this revolutionary payment system that can send money directly from person to person uh, in minutes anywhere in the world. And now, the uh, you know early Internet pioneers had always envisioned that a payments protocol would be kind of woven into the fabric of the web. Uh, when Peter Thiel was building PayPal, his original ambition was not for it to be a normal payments company, but was for it to be an internet currency that would replace the U.S. dollar for online transactions. What, what kind of put the kibosh on that 
were two things. First, the popping of the dot-com bubble, which forced him to uh, reach profitability much more quickly to prove his business. And second, the more and more fundamentally, the new financial regulations that came down after 9-11 to try to combat terrorist financing and money laundering, uh, they forced him to pivot away from that. But because I knew about those things, uh, when I first heard about Bitcoin, I, it really struck me as an idea whose time had come. And the brilliant thing, among other brilliant things that Satoshi Nakamoto did, is that he didn't found a new company like PayPal. Instead, he built a decentralized system that no one would own, but anyone could participate in. And, uh, and, and that is one of the things that has allowed Bitcoin to grow and thrive. Well, and it really was allowing anybody to participate. As I said, we, I think we ordered an ASIC processor and set it up. And I wasn't the technical guy. I was, uh, I'm always sort of the artsy-fartsy guy. Um, but I would listen and watch and, and see how my roommates would put this together. And now the, the power on the network, it's not necessarily cost-effective. And we did have a knock from our landlord saying, why is the power bill so high? Uh, but right. this, because it's a decentralized network, it is essentially a program that runs. There was a need for a lot of infrastructure to be built around it. And this is where a lot of these early pioneers come into play. Right. Um, they they needed, um, you know, like user-friendly wallet interfaces uh, where people could store and access their digital currency. They needed online exchanges uh, for people who wanted to buy or invest in a digital currency. They needed to be able to turn their dollars or yen or euros or pounds into bitcoins. And then, you know, similarly, if they were treating it kind of as an investment asset and they saw that the value of their holdings had doubled and they wanted to sell, they needed a way to turn them back into dollars or yen or euros or pounds. Um, they needed, uh, you know, they needed um, sort of miners to uh, mine the currency and maintain the network because it's these people running what you sort of referred to and running up the electricity bills. They're the ones who are responsible for um, recording and verifying transactions on the network. And then for doing that work uh, and going to that kind of trouble and expense, they are then rewarded with uh, new Bitcoins, which are created at a predetermined rate over time that everybody knows in advance. So that's sort of the inflation rate, you could call it, in the system. But unlike the Fed's inflation rate, this is one that is predetermined and kind of hard-coded and understood by everyone in advance. Um, but that is the incentive, made the major incentive for these uh, miners to do the work of maintaining the network, which benefits everyone. And um, so there was, yeah, a tremendous and 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 there is a tremendous amount of infrastructure that needed to be built, and and that work is still ongoing. Well, and it was difficult, and I imagine in a way for these folks out there trying to create this infrastructure, because there was this gray area in terms of the mm. law, um, and I. Definitely, and we will have to take a break here in a second, a short break, but I definitely want to talk about the gray hat. Um, I think his mm. story is fascinating. I remember actually the day he was arrested, and I said, well, why don't you arrest the executives of HSBC, too? <laughs> like, my goodness. Um, well, if you, read, uh, if you read toward the end of my book, there's the part where one of his uh, friends and former colleagues makes that exact point, and I, I allow him to make it uh, that... HSBC escaped with just a fine, and they were laundering money for you know drug Mexican drug cartels and stuff. So, 
So you really fell in love with this idea. As you said earlier, you took a risk to just go out there and, and put this book together yourself. Is Was there sort of a, a writing process that you took notes and then you sat down and put it all together? Or were you writing as you went? Oh, you know, I, I don't know if I could give you a, a step-by-step process. It was kind of a whirlwind. Uh, this was such a fast-moving story that as I was reporting uh, one piece of it, other things were exploding and happening that made me realize they needed to be incorporated into the book. And, you know, it's, it's, it's quite a challenge to embark on a project like this and start building a narrative when you don't know what the end is going to be. And you know you need to cut the book off at some point, even though surely some of the characters and stories you tell are going to continue past the, the end of the last page. But you, you want to find, you know, hopefully some kind of closure uh, by the end of the book or some milestone point uh, that it has reached. But, you know, you're building these, these narratives and, uh, and, and in my case, following multiple different characters, each of whom kind of exemplified a different aspect of the Bitcoin community or a different aspect of this uh, revolution that it was fomenting. And you have no idea where, you know, one of them ends up in federal prison. I don't want to ruin too much of the book. But by the end of the book, he ends up in federal prison. But I didn't know that would happen initially. Right. You right. know, so, um, yeah, it was it was certainly challenging in that regard. Well, folks, again, we were talking to Brian Patrick Eha. He is, well, the author of this book we are discussing, How Money Got Free, Bitcoin and the Fight for the Future of Finance. One guy described it as a fiber optic cable extending into our uncertain economic future. Uh, the book is fantastic. I'm, I'm working my way through it, as I admitted to you, uh, off air, and I'll tell it to the audience on air, because it sort of, again, took me back to this time in my life where even though we were small guys, uh, small players, just doing a little Litecoin here and there, a few Bitcoins here or there, it felt like we were part of something new and revolutionary and, and mm. a little bit dangerous and like we weren't supposed to be doing it, but we knew it was worth it. And the soundtrack back to those days, I think it was because I had watched American Psycho at that time, uh, was Huey Lewis in the news. So <laughs> taking us out, the album of the day, and for some reason I have this on vinyl. This, if this is it, um, we'll be right back with Brian Patrick Ehaw talking about his book, How Money Got Free, Bitcoin and the Fight for the Future of Finance. This will be a short break. Stay tuned. Clark. Uh, welcome back to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Our guest tonight is Brian Patrick Eha. He's the author of a new book, How Money Got Free, Bitcoin and the Fight for the Future of Finance. He's also a journalist who's been published in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, Fortune, CNN Money, and many other publications. Now, Brian, because we only have an hour and I'm working with my bosses to do more, but I want to talk about the gray hat. I find his story fascinating, tragic in some ways. We don't have to give the game away completely because I want folks to get this book. But uh, sure. who is the gray hat? Well, uh, he was the guy named Charlie Shrem, and his story really resonates with me. Uh, I call him the gray hat because when he was a teenager, um, he kind of discovered a knack for computers, and he had been a really shy kid up to that point, but he came out of his shell 
and he discovered uh, a kind of role for himself on some online hacker communities, uh, one in particular. And so he, he sort of became a teenage hacker before ever discovering Bitcoin. Uh, but there, in, in hacker parlance, there are the black hats who are kind of the malicious, you know, the Russian hackers that do bad stuff. There are uh, so-called white hats who uh, do some of that same stuff, but uh, under the, um, the supervision and at the permission of clients, like companies that uh, want them to try to hack into their systems just to test their own security. And then there's kind of the gray hats who may not ask permission first, but if they discover a security hole, they may notify the company uh, whose you know, uh, systems they've broken into or something uh, to, to kind of you know, do the nice thing and allow them to patch it that, that no black hats can really exploit it maliciously. Hmm. And that was kind of uh, how Charlie saw himself. And then, but, but he was really just this young middle-class guy living with his parents in Brooklyn before he discovered Bitcoin, uh, very young. And he ended up co-founding one of the major early Bitcoin startups. It was actually the first to receive serious venture capital funding. And of all the major players in those days, um, I would say he was perhaps the one most gratified by the attention and, and most eager for the publicity, mm. fame, and respect that came from his leadership role in the community. Uh, but he also ended up kind of suffering more than most, and I don't want to give too much away, but, but there's a pathos there to me, the story of this middle-class kid made good and a kind of fall from grace and, and then an attempt at a comeback. Well, how do you see, so we don't give too much away, the relation of governments and these young entrepreneurs, and this is what troubles me, and it is tragic, that you have these young, brilliant people trying to create incredible things, but, well, I guess if you steal the fire from the gods, you might end up being punished. And how do you see going forward some of the relationship between the governments of the world, whether the one in D.C., Beijing, or Moscow, and, and this yeah. burgeoning tech? You know, it's, it's tough to say, and I don't think it's going to be monolithic. I think it's going to be a patchwork uh, across the globe, different countries taking different stances toward it. And we're already seeing that, you know, uh, Beijing is being much harsher than the U.S. or, uh, let's say, Singapore or Switzerland. Uh, some countries, I think, are going to attract a lot of talent, a lot of uh, human capital and financial capital and innovation if they uh, choose to be more friendly toward these technologies. Others are going to take a different path, and they may see a brain drain. Um, I think it, it, it's tough to say because, on the one hand, you want to say the smarter regulators you know, and the smarter government officials will take a more open stance toward uh, these uh, technologies. On the other hand, if some of the most radical claims for Bitcoin uh, are to be believed by you know some of the most radical claims that its uh, its, its advocates make. Well, then they could eventually spend the end, spell the end of the Federal Reserve or of the current you know monetary system that we have in place around the world and the uh, the system of banks just kind of lending out uh, you know waves of credit that lead to bubbles and then crashes and these other things. So in that case, if you're someone who works for a government and you support the status quo and want to maintain it. Well, then maybe it makes sense for you not to be quite so friendly toward this stuff. Um, but the important thing to realize is that Bitcoin really is a global phenomenon. 
and a single country trying to, in some way, shut it down or ban it is just, even if it were possible to do, and I don't think it is, uh, it's going to continue to exist in every other part of the world, just like the Internet still exists, despite North Korea trying to uh, shut its people off from it. And, and look at North Korea. North Korea is a backwater because of doing things like that. So I think ultimately the countries that, that don't allow, that don't either themselves embrace these things or allow their citizens at least to use and embrace them, I think they may find themselves falling behind. Now, as a as a journalist, and you know, you're taking a longer view, getting to know these folks personally, these pioneers personally. You're taking a risk yourself, as you said. How do you find? How do you? Uh, th- what do you think about the press coverage of Bitcoin? Because it's always, I think, associated. And we have to be honest with what some would consider nefarious parts of society, whether it's ransomware or the stories about Silk Road. And actually, my heart is nothing but beating for Ross. Uh, I think what happened there uh, was a tragedy as well. But what is your take on how the media generally uh, serves this topic up to the average news consumer? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's uh, it, it does a disservice in many cases, uh, to be honest. Uh, you know, a lot of the stories you can find on CNBC.com or, um, you know, in, in Market Watch or some of these other media outlets, um, each one is like a tiny piece of a story. And someone who doesn't really know the larger context, which, you know, I've tried to provide in my book um, and doesn't know the full narrative, is just going to come away scratching their head, I think. In some cases, even basic terms are not really defined in the stories um, or the significance of things is not really defined. And I think it's because uh, these journalists, some of them, the reporters, don't understand uh, Bitcoin or blockchain technology or other cryptocurrencies and the further developments of this, this ecosystem that are emerging all the time. They don't understand them well themselves, so how can they explain them to a larger audience? Beyond that, there's another issue which I encountered, um, you know, in the press coverage, particularly in 2013, 2014, and so on, of when I was starting to work on my book. And that is a kind of ideological bias, I think, against um, against uh, some of the members of the Bitcoin community, you know, particularly in the days where the, the Bitcoin community was mostly filled with libertarians and mm-hmm. people of a certain kind of... Uh, anarchist or, or, or anti-government bent, well, we know that a lot of mainstream journalists, uh, for better or worse, uh, tend to be much more pro-government and uh, they tend to be, you know, left-leaning and so on. And they, they, the, I noticed in the stories, for instance, that, that they tended to take the tone of, uh, look at these weird people doing this weird thing, isn't that weird? And, and I think, okay, but why are they doing this thing? You know, what motivates them? They're not just crazy. They have their reasons, whether it makes sense to you or not. So what are those reasons? What's, what's driving them ideologically or financially or emotionally or whatever else? And, you know, one of the things that drove some of the early pioneers I talked about in my book is uh, their reading of certain political philosophers like Frederick Bastiat, their reading of economists like, uh, you know, Murray Rothbard and Ludwig von Mises or Friedrich Hayek and and some of these thinkers that, frankly, mainstream journalists and, and a lot of average people in society today are just not at all familiar with. And so the most that would ever be done in these press stories was to make passing reference to a few of these names, 
but uh, they would just identify them as like, you know, free market thinker, Murray Rothbard, or, you know, they would use like a shorthand that was less a description than a kind of way of signaling to their reader, hey, uh, no need to pay attention to this. You and I both understand this guy is a fringe figure that we shouldn't take seriously. But these people take him seriously because they're crazy or they're weird, right? right? So I think that does a real disservice to the reader to just use that shorthand way of, of, of skipping over the, the underpinnings of, of these things. And so for me, their loss was my gain. I mean, that was a missed opportunity, I thought, and it was something that I really took the time to explore in my book. And I talk, there are moments in the narrative where one guy who's into Bitcoin, he meets another guy who's into Bitcoin at some conference, and it ends up being a major kind of moment for these two people, and a lot of connections come out of that, and it has a cascading effect through the rest of the narrative. Uh, but what helps them connect is that they share this kind of common syllabus of these some of these writers and thinkers that I mentioned. And to not understand that is to miss, I think, a fundamental part of the story and of the motives uh, behind these guys and their actions. Well, and as a as a news junkie in particular, a political news junkie, and <laughs> was I, that a long winded enough answer? Oh uh, no, that was a that was a great <laughs> answer. That was a fantastic answer because it made me think of this. Um, you know, well, first off, folks, I hear y'all on these airwaves every day complain about the mainstream media. The mainstream media. Well, then stop reading a lot of the news and pick up this book. Look, I've learned that you if you really want to know what's going on out there, you need a larger story. You need more than just a radio hour. So go pick up this book. It's on Amazon, How Money Got Free, Bitcoin and the Fight for the Future of Finance. The author is our guest tonight, Brian Patrick Eha. And when you're talking about some of the criticisms, of course there are some mm. criticisms from some central bankers. Uh, the, mm. One of the most ironic uh, criticisms I found were the sort of gold bugs who says, oh, this, uh, this Bitcoin thing violates Mises' regression theorem here. Um, and actually, I think there's some work that's been done uh, that shows actually it doesn't. But what are some of the common criticisms you find mm. other than just saying, oh, this is weird? What were, would you say are criticisms that actually draw blood that make you worry about the future? Yeah. Well, I don't know about, you know, I, I should say, you know, I've tried to be more or less objective. I mean, I, while I was working on the book, I was not owning any Bitcoin except right. for a little amount uh, so that I could kind of test how the different wallets worked and what it was like to do a Bitcoin transaction or buy it and store it and things like that. So, you know, I'm not at all trying to be a Bitcoin advocate, per se. I do think it's a fascinating invention, and I think, on balance, it's probably a good thing for the world, and it's unleashing a lot of other dramatic and fascinating, uh, you know, innovations. But I will say, so I, I, I shouldn't say that I personally worry about this, the future of Bitcoin, uh, but I'm certainly, I have a vested interest in it in some sense, right, as right. an observer and as a journalist. Um, so the criticisms that draw blood... Um, you know, one is uh, that, well, some people, you know, they just uh, refuse to accept it because they think, they say there's nothing backing it, there's nothing behind it. And then you kind of have to do the work of telling them, well, there's nothing really behind the U.S. dollar either, except right. that the U.S. government forces you to use it to pay your taxes, that you have to pay your taxes in the form of that currency. Yeah, proof of violence, a proof of violence. Right, yeah. right. and it's a uh, social consensus that, we all continue to agree that these things, uh, these pieces of paper or, or digital, you know, money in our bank accounts has value. Um, and then the gold bugs will kind of say, oh, you know, you can't hold it in your hand. It's not real. 
and they'll point to, well, there is a kind of guy who was in, in my book, one of the main characters, who was an investment banker on Wall Street, then started his own brokerage firm. And he was looking for an asset that would be kind of a, a almost a bet against the world, if that makes sense. You know, a right. bet against all of the kind of uh, nightmare machinery that we have in the standard financial system, as he saw it. And, and he was interested in gold for that purpose for a while. And he liked the fact that gold had thousands of years of human history backing it as a store of value. But, you know, he realized eventually that could change at any time. And he also realized that Bitcoin can serve the same function as gold. It's a scarce asset, but except it exists digitally rather than physically. And as a result, it's easier to store. It's easier to secure. It's easier to transport. It's easier to transmit to someone else. And, uh, you know, you don't have to put it in a vault that someone can break into or a hole in the ground. Now, there are issues of cybersecurity you have to worry about. But... He realized it has a number of advantages over gold, and he also realized that you know central banks around the world are still holding trillions of dollars of gold uh, in their vaults, and that if push comes to shove, governments, as he put it, are going to sell off their gold before they sell off their monuments. And so he thought he'd rather be holding an asset that if the the you know crap hits the fan hmm. would not be the the asset that governments around the world would be selling off to pay their debts. Um, so that was kind of how he thought about it. But, you know, there are other, it gets pretty technical, it gets into the weeds, but there are other criticisms like the fact that um, Bitcoin cannot process more than a few transactions per second. Right. Whereas we look at Uber, and I think Uber does like 12 rides per second, uh, which is phenomenal. It says something about the size and success of Uber. Uh, but essentially, people have pointed out that the Bitcoin network in its current state couldn't actually even handle all of the transactions just for Uber. And so that has led some people to say, well, maybe it's not really going to be a form of money in the way we're used to thinking about it. It's not going to replace Visa or MasterCard and do thousands of transactions per second. But that doesn't mean it can't be used for a number of other things like high-value cross-border transactions, which currently are very time-consuming and costly and difficult. And uh, some percentage of them, like 6% of them, don't even go through, whereas uh, digital currency can be easily transmitted across borders. So there, you know, there, there are answers, I think, to a lot of the potential criticisms, but there certainly are people who are skeptical about it. Well, and, you know, you made me think of uh, earlier today we were talking about this Las Vegas shooter and how mm. he had transferred money in segments of ten grand, I believe, to the Philippines. And mm. the host I was working with, who's a financial advisor, said, yeah, you can't do more than ten grand or you'll be flagged. And I looked at a chart mm. earlier today that I think the average transaction value of a Bitcoin transaction is like twenty five grand. Mm. Um, that yeah. And you can move that, as you said, it's across borders. It is a global uh, currency. Right. I could send that to Tokyo or to New York City right. here from Montgomery, Alabama. Um, and well, I, here's the thing. Go ahead. Sorry to, uh, to interrupt. I was just going to say this, this gets a little bit technical again, but the thing to understand, and that makes Bitcoin so global and so powerful, is that you're not actually having to transmit money anywhere. So we, we talk about it in that those terms, but yes. it's a euphemism, just like uh, when we talk about Bitcoin mining, you know, they're obviously not digging anything out of the ground, so it's a euphemistic term. What's actually happening is that Bitcoin has this thing called the blockchain underlying it, which is basically a decentralized 
tamper-proof ledger for recording transactions. And um, anyone who is uh, a constantly updated copy of the ledger recording all Bitcoin transactions is stored on the computer of anyone running uh, the software. Now, essentially, the blockchain, since it's just a ledger that records ownership, all it does when I send you Bitcoins is it just changes the ownership of those Bitcoins from me to you, which means the funds don't actually have to go anywhere. Now, the digital wallet interfaces that different uh, you know, Bitcoin companies have built that provide a user-friendly way to interact with your digital currency, they do kind of show uh, the coins disappearing from one account and showing up in the other account, like we're used to seeing with a PayPal wallet or a bank account. Right. But, but really, they're not being transmitted, and that's why it's not even, you know, like when if you've ever flown across uh, borders, they say you're supposed to declare if you have more than $10,000 of cash on you, right? Right. Well, the funny thing is these characters in my book, they start having uh, Bitcoin wallets on their smartphones with thousands of dollars of Bitcoins in them, and they're carrying their smartphones across borders, of course, and not declaring it. But it's because it's not really accurate to say they're bringing Bitcoins with them. It's more accurate to say the Bitcoins exist everywhere that they already are which is a kind of mind-blowing thing to think about. Well, and it but it's definitely a new paradigm. It didn't hit home to me, but I was messing around with a, an a altcoin. I, I think it was WorldCoin, and I lost some money there. Uh, but, mm. you know, the network uh, went down, or our internet went out, and I was like, oh, my God. But then I went to a different place and tapped right back into that ledger. So, yeah, the idea Absolutely. is that you're carrying the software around and you're able to tap into this global ledger anywhere as long as you have Internet access. Right. Right. This is something people ask me. They say, well, if your money is just in digital form, what happens if an electromagnetic pulse wipes out, you know, uh, Internet and digital communications and then do you lose your Bitcoin? Right. And that seems dangerous. You know, you, can't, you have to have something you can hold in your hand to feel secure. Well, that's actually not true. I mean, that's one of the, the powerful things about a decentralized network like Bitcoin is it removes single points of failure. So if an EMP went off in New York City, where I live, that would be disastrous for the country's economy, right? The stock market would go down. The big banks would be thrown into chaos. You know, who knows what would happen? Uh, but and I'm sure there are some redundancies in the system, but, but not nearly enough. Whereas with Bitcoin, the entire United States could be sent back to the Stone Age. And yet the Bitcoin network would still be running just fine in Asia and Europe and other parts of the world. Yes. And then if we could ever get back online over here, we could just plug back into it and all of our uh, Bitcoins would still be accessible, would still exist. Yeah, it makes it uh, very anti-fragile. And I, I find this just mind-blowing. And I'm glad I'm back into your book. Again, folks, How Money Got Free, Bitcoin and the Fight for the Future Finance. You can find it on Amazon. The author and our guest tonight is, again, Brian Patrick Eha. Um, Brian, on, I kind of want to end on a, a personal note. I, I try to make the show about uh, you know reaching across and just learning who people are personally. Um, when you grew up in your house, uh, home life, was it a very political place? Where, do you come from a family of writers? You know, um, my, my, my parents, uh, I grew up in a pretty uh, religious home, a pretty conservative home. Um, you know, both my parents were kind of um, small-c conservatives, uh, mm. tended to vote Republican. And, um, and I, I, I was kind of the black sheep of the family, to be honest. I mean, certainly as a young guy, I imbibed some of that. 
but um, I wanted to get the hell out of there as soon as I was 18, and I did, uh, whereas my, my older brother continued to live there until he was about 21 or so, and um, I have a little sister who's, who's in her early 20s and still living at home. Um, I really ended up, you know, kind of somewhat socially and politically different than them, um, but I, I have been, you know, I guess I, I withhold judgment on certain things, which aids me as a journalist and as an observer. Um, I, 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 but of course, I have my own um, my own beliefs, my own convictions, and I do tend to be more liberty minded. I do tend to, I guess, if, if you've ever played Dungeons and Dragons, uh, you know that, uh, which I actually wasn't allowed to do. Cause my parents <laughs> thought it was uh, witchcraft, you oh, know. But um, but but if you're if you're familiar with the uh, when you create a character in that game, you can choose their sort of alignment. Mm-hmm. It's either like uh, chaotic good or lawful good or, or chaotic evil or lawful evil and so on. And we might think of the giant kind of sprawling government bureaucracy that we have today as in some sense lawful evil, right? It's yes. kind of well-ordered and, uh, and, and, and the trains run on time more or less. Uh, but it's encroaching more and more on uh, spheres of personal liberty, I think, in a way that is, is just starting to be incredibly onerous. Um, and then there's, uh, you know, lawful good, which is like the super law and order kind of, um, you know, uh, I guess Republican types. And I'm not quite that. Uh, I guess I'm more a little bit in the, the sphere of chaotic good, if I could put it that way. I, I, um, I would be, too. Um, yeah. But uh, I don't identify as, a, as, a, as an anarchist or anything like that. Sure. But um, but anyway, that's kind of where I come from. And then as for my mother, she has a master's degree in linguistics from Georgetown. There it is. And I was uh, homeschooled in elementary school. Um, and so I was a very early reader. And I think a lot of my love of words and, and, and verbal ability definitely was imparted to me uh, by her. And, and through that education, I mean, no public school, no private school could really hope to give you a better uh, teacher than that, you know. Absolutely. Again, well, Brian, thank you for being on the show tonight. Again, his name, folks, is Brian Patrick Eha. Check out his book on Amazon, How Money Got Free, Bitcoin, and the Fight for the Future of Finance. It is an incredible story. And, Brian, I hope, you know, like the, the big short, somebody picks this up and makes a movie out of this. This is It's such a story that it needs to be on the big screen for... Well, some other Americans who don't like to read books. <laughs> <laughs> sure, that would be great. Yeah, I'd love to have the uh, the new edition of the book with like the movie poster cover. You know, right, that you right. get after the movie comes out. Right. Well, thanks a lot. Well, thank you, Brian. I, I really enjoyed our discussion tonight, and uh, I wish you well. And folks, check out the book once again. Yeah, absolutely. And by the way, uh, it's not just on Amazon as a hardcover and a Kindle ebook, but if you like other ebook formats you can get it in the google play store or apple's ibooks um i think even barnes and noble's uh, nook for anybody who has one of those <laughs> and then it's in bookstores around the country as well 